You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. My guest today is actor, poet, and author of the award-winning book, Beautiful, Unashamed and Unafraid, the one and only Josanne Marie. All right, Josanne, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here, my friend. Um, I've been looking forward to to this this conversation for a minute. We've had many conversations over the years, yeah. some deep, deep, rich conversations, whether it be about faith, uh, whether it be about um, being in the industry, poetry. We've had some rich conversations. So I, I want to capture that um, because I think you're brilliant. I think you're wise. I think you have just, so your yeah. voice is necessary, um, especially during this time right now. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you, at least I think I know you. <laughs> All right? Yeah. But you share for the people listening, for those who are listening, who is Josanne Marie? Um, where are you from? What do you do? What are you passionate about? Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for having me. It's always an honor. Um, for sure. And this amazing show, Intersections, is very necessary. So thank you for having me on it, on this podcast. Um, so I was born in Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica, and I came. Yeah. Jamaica, man. <laughs> we got one, yes. <laughs> real yeah. quick, real quick. My yeah. favorite drink, non-alcoholic. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute now. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Reese ginger beer. Oh, yes. It's my yes. favorite drink of all time. Times. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I had to throw that no, in. No, no, that's good. Um, yeah, I was born in Jamaica, and I came here when I was 10 years old. Um, I was raised in the Bronx, the Boogie Down Bronx in New York. Boogie Down, um, okay. Yes. Um, you know, with the, Jenny on the block, well, they had Josanne on the block. Um <laughs> in the Bronx and went to Christopher Columbus High School. And then I went to um, John Jay College of Criminal Justice where I ended up uh, majoring in forensic psychology. And, um, you know, I, from a little girl, like I had this big dream, you know, I grew up in a, a home back in Jamaica. I didn't grow up with a lot of money, grew up, you know, but it didn't really matter. I had a grandmother who really loved me and um, you know, took care of me. And, but we always knew that life could be better, you know? And, um, even as a little girl, uh, God, I didn't see my grandmother go to church. Um, but she would send me to church. And, you know, I was thinking about that the other day that <laughs> one of the greatest gifts my grandmother ever gave me and legacy she's left with me is faith. Okay. And she didn't have a lot of money to, invest in my education and you know things that we hope for right um or shouldn't leave me no land or anything like that where i could be like oh but i was just thinking about it the other day wow my grandmother gave me one of the the, the best gift ever which was get up every sunday go to church invest in your faith own your faith exactly <laughs> and that has blessed and enriched my life to this point. So, um, the best treasure ever. Um, yeah. And, you know, I came to the U S for a better life and, um, 
always knew from I was a little girl that I, I, I all I have to say this was you know I give that to God I just had a knowing that I was created to do something great that I was created to make a difference I've always had that as a child I always wanted to help the kid in class that nobody wanted to hang out with I was very strong um, I had very strong passion against injustice. I hated when people looked down on other people. I always had that when I was in a ch as a child. I always wanted to come to the rescue. Um, and I believe that was something God placed in me. And I just saw the world bigger. And when I came to the US, that was a dream, was to create a better life in order to go back to Jamaica and help my mom and my grandmother. And, you know, that's third world country. That's what you do as an immigrant, you know, and especially in America, where it stated that this is the land of dreams and opportunity. Um, nevertheless, when I got here, you know, uh, unfortunately, I encountered some, you know, things in the home dealing with child abuse and so forth. And that kind of took me off course, but there was just still this desire to win. There was still this desire to overcome um, in my life at that point. And so, you know, I went to, you know, went to high school and graduated and decided that I wanted to go to college. And the dream was to become, um, I wanted to be them anything. I wanted to be a flight attendant. I wanted to be a lot of things <laughs> and it changed over a while, but I was very drawn to entertainment. That was like the common thing all the time was that I wanted to perform. And interestingly enough, even though I went to a criminal justice school, um, I would say that's where I was really discovered as an actress um, through a off-Broadway director who decided he was gonna be an, an adjunct professor at John Jay. And he had an audition um, for a play and I went, went out for it and he was like, I don't know what you're doing here, but you need to be a performer. Hmm. And that was the confirmation um, that I got for myself that this was my path. And he, he gave me my first acting job as an actress to tour throughout New York to encourage people, interestingly enough. Um, through social issues like teenage pregnancy, drunk, you know, don't drive and drink and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I started that and that led me to LA and here I am as an actress and now an author and a speaker and many more other things that I'm learning. Um, you know, but I'm very, if I, I must say, I'm very passionate about God and passionate about life. Um, I woke up even this morning and I was thinking to myself, we get so excited about little things and it's not that we shouldn't be grateful, but when you look at God and how magnificent and glorious he is, like, I want to be passionate about everything with excellence and that's always my drive every day. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. <laughs> wow. And you know, what was interesting is that passion, when I first met you, wow, how many years ago? That was 2006, yeah. 2006. So we're talking yeah, 14, 14 years, years ago. Yeah. And I had a spoken word show at yeah. Faithful Central. And yeah. I don't know how we met. I think someone made, either someone told me about you. I think it was um, Anduele AD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And when I, I heard, you know, 
there there are people who whether they're vocalists preachers spoken word artists whatever the case may be that just hit you within the first few sentences mm. and that passion you talk about um the greatness that you talk about created to do something great that was in there from the time i first met you in in, in your in your your poetry and you've done we've done some things over the years yeah. Um, yeah. since then but it's just been um profound to to listen to your words to even as i'm listening to you now there's there's a deep well yeah. of, of rich life inspired wisdom you know what i mean so that's why I'm so excited for you being here. You, you mentioned um, you grew up in, in Jamaica. Yeah. How did growing up in Jamaica shape your view of the U.S.? Mm. And has that changed? I don't want to wow. assume anything. <laughs> that's such a loaded question. Oh, my gosh. I mean, for sure. Um, so growing up in Jamaica as, you know, Jamaica, we it's twofold so as a child growing up especially as a you know black woman dark-skinned woman i mean in jamaica we also have so many different shades in jamaica like when people think of jamaica they think about just like yeah you know beaches and you know black women but you go to jamaica there's definitely a melting pot of just a variety of um color when it comes to you 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 might see asian jamaican um, you might see an Indian looking Jamaican. They, they call them coolie, um, mm -hmm. where they're dark skinned girls with straight, long straight hair. And they are like, what go on, man? And you're just like thrown off. Like, what? Where am I? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or even an Asian person speaking Patois. And that's because we had so many businessmen um, and women who've, you know, traveled from India and, and China and from Syria. Like my grandfather, um, my grandmother's dad was Syrian. Um, so there's all this, yeah, um, you know, and they owned a lot of the business and then they obviously would, you know, become intimate with the women in town. And then you had like all these different shades of people. And so growing up for me in Jamaica, that was a beauty, of course. I never really, as you know, when it comes to the color of my skin, um, or just even being, you know, a, a black woman. As a little girl, I wasn't very conscious of it because it, it 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 wasn't something that my parents said in the home or dealt with in at home. And then when I used to go out, like if I went to the doctor or went to school, I would see black people in leadership, black teachers, black doctors, lawyers. So it didn't really, it was, and we didn't learn a lot about slavery. That's another thing. That wasn't something that they focused on academically at school. So I, I didn't know that, you know, when it comes to black history, that slavery was like a main thing. Yeah. Until I came to the US, I was more aware of that. So as a little girl, but what I was conscious of was colorism to some level that I would see in class sometimes, the teacher would treat the light-skinned girl with the straight hair a little bit better, or they'll put her as the classroom monitor all the time. And then it, it was an unspoken thing Then you start to really internalize it. Like, why didn't she pick me? And then you start to notice 
She ain't picking none of the black and dark skin. Girls. And this is this is in the United States or is this no, in this Jamaica? No, this is in Jamaica. Okay, this okay. This is in Jamaica. It's just the racialization wasn't as you weren't as conscious of it as you yeah. were when you come here. When I came here, so when I came to the U.S. and I, would, I mean, I was just having that conversation a couple of days ago. When I came to the U.S., you know, I I never felt like I couldn't do anything because of the color of my skin. That was not a narrative that I had in my mind. I'm just like, okay, she black, I'm black, she's white, what's the problem, uh, you know? Exactly, I studied, exactly. She studied, you know, and so, and we, we were taught to be excellent, you know? Like the way even academically in Jamaica compared to the US, when I came, when I was in ninth grade in the US, these were things I learned when I was like seven, eight years old in wow. Jamaica. Wow. So, you know, it was just like a breeze to me. I'm like, this is high school, <laughs> you know? Uh, but, and you know, anyway, and that has to do with the British and just a lot of different things. Um, but I never felt there, were, there was actually um, systemic racism because I didn't have that in my mind. I felt like we were on equal plane yeah. when I yeah. came here. Yeah. And so when I walked in a room, I had that confidence. Um, not to say that I was not discriminated against. I'm sure I was, yeah. but I was not aware of it. So I yeah. carried myself in a different way when I walked into the room. And so when I dealt with my African-American brothers and sisters who were born here and they're talking about racism, I'm like, what? Uh, what are you talking about? Like, I, don't, I just couldn't get it, you yeah. know, until, and I still couldn't get it until I became an actor then I realized there was a difference. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That was when I encountered racism and I was like, oh, I get it now. Put a pin there. Yes. I, I yes, want to come back. I want to come back to that. I want to yeah. come back to that. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to go back to something that you, you mentioned earlier. You said you mentioned uh, that you experienced child abuse yes. when you came to the States, right? Yes. Okay. Um, do you mind sharing? Um, because you, you've 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 told this story for those who do not know who you are in your play, beautiful, your award-winning play, I should say, beautiful, the solo play. It is a must-see. I don't know when you're going to do it again live. Yeah. Hopefully, we get through this pandemic and it'll be back on again. I'm yeah. not sure, but it is a must-see. I think you need to record it somehow and get it on video oh yeah we're trying to do a live stream of it so it's okay. in the works well we'll we, we will make sure you let me know so i can update people yeah but you tell the story in in, in there and you have a book as well an award-winning um book as well and we'll talk about that in just a second but i want to talk about the story behind those those ventures yeah the, the, the child abuse do you mind unpacking that and sharing a little bit with us sure um so for me i went through a, a 10-year period of um, abuse. So from I was six years old, um, you know, I, like I said, I grew up in Jamaica and I lived with my grandmother and my, um, and her boyfriend. And um, I didn't had you know, met my father until I was six. So my dad moved away to the U.S. when I was one years old. And I never um, met my mom either. I just knew that she was in the hospital and she was not okay. Um, which, you know, later I found out that she had mental illness, um, which brought a lot of shame and different things. And I'm sure we'll talk about that too, you know, to some point, but, 
I met my dad at the age of six and growing up in Jamaica, just culturally to some level, it's two things. Either the men were very, um, you know, I grew up in a very seductive culture. So if you see like Jamaican dance hall and all of this stuff, you know, it, it's it's very sexual, I highly sexualized, you know? And so you, you either had that part of Jamaica or you had the part where people were not affectionate, um, where the parents were more, um, you know, you're gonna get a pat on the back or you're, they're gonna buy you a gift for being a great student or accomplishing something. But I didn't grow up in a culture where my, you know, there was a lot of hugs. We didn't hug a lot. So even when I came to the US and people were like, hi, I'm just like, wait a minute, y'all too close. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, it was just a little bit uncomfortable um, because culturally we're not like that. When people are really affectionate, they tend to show it in a sexual way to some level. But I was not aware of that based on just the, you know, the, the man that my grandmother lived with, he never hugged me. He never kissed me. There was no, no, no affection. It was just more, I provide. And, and is, that, my, is that, a, a is that cultural for Jamaica or for your yes, family? Yes, to some level. Okay. To some level, Jamaica, you know, I mean, I think it all comes down to, I mean, even just African culture to some level, how it seep into different cultures. Like, um, as a little girl, it was just, I don't know if it has changed now, but for me, I used to just see that a lot. Like the dads, they never really hug a lot their kids yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and especially if you weren't their child, you know, it was more of a distance. Um, but I, you know, I met my dad when, I was six, he showed up and it was the, the happiest moment in my life because one of the happiest moments in my life because it was a place of identity. It was like, I didn't know my mom really. And then I did, I never saw my dad, but in a photograph and um, we used to write letters and so forth. And then one day I'm outside playing and he shows up and it was like, I had something or someone to affirm my um, presence here, you know, as a young girl. And um, so I was very excited and, you know, me and my dad, I mean, he was there for about two weeks and it was just the world, you know, but um, through it all, through that period of time, you know, he was affectionate to me and, you know, he um, hugged me and, and he told me I was beautiful. That's the whole thing where beautiful comes from because, you know, my dad, unfortunately um was inappropriate and so my he kissed me inappropriately when i was six and this was the first time i was meeting him and i didn't know what that meant you know i just because like i said i never got an affection from someone else to kind of set the foundation you yeah, know yeah so for me it was just like what was that but then again i was just like i'm happy happy to see my dad so all i could focus on was the fact that my dad was there and after, you know, for me, I felt like it was yucky. And he was like, no, that's because you're beautiful. And so my first encounter with that word of beauty was, um, was tainted and sexualized and perverted. Um, and even though it might not have feel like anything for me as a child, I could see how that seeped into how I started to the course of my life as I got older, you know? 
um, that was the genesis of that. And anyway, so my dad left and we never talked about the kids. I never told my grandmother because I felt like it wasn't important. The fact was that my dad came, you know? Yeah. And so my grandmother was like, I want to send, I want, my grandmother wanted me to go, you know, move to, to New York and live with my dad for a better life. And that happened when I was 10. Um, but even through that, you know, other things happened. And when people read the book, you know, we can go through different things. Other things happened in Jamaica outside of that, you know, at the age of eight. And it was just that perverted, unfortunately, you know, those situations, I was encountering those things as a child. And I went and I lived with my dad when I was 10 and basically the abuse continued until mm. I was 16. And, um, you know, so it, it went from just touching, then it became sexual, um, and then physical and some verbal, you know, it just, it just became this whole thing. And I think what it did was it brought me into this dark place because, you know, here I am in the place of dreams of opportunity and feeling alone and feeling, you know, all of these things. And now I was a, more aware of my body and a lot of shame came with that. A lot of blame came with that. A lot of fear came with that. Um, at, in addition to other things. And so at 16, I decided to run away from home after all those things happened. And, and yeah, that became another journey in my life. So at 16, it was my last, my junior year in high school, I had one more year to go and I was homeless going to high school my last year of um, my senior year. And I would, you know, get up, um, I slept in a friend's car in the middle of the night and I would wake up and, cause I was still a minor, I wasn't 18 yet and parents didn't want me in their house because they could get in trouble, that's how they felt. Um, and I didn't want to go into foster care and I didn't want to go to a shelter, you know, and all of those things. And so I would sleep in this person's car and I would get up and go to my friend's house, take a shower and go to school, um, until I graduated from high school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's just so much to, um, unpack just in that, in that segment, um, you know, they, they, the statistics I did find talked yeah. about one out of every four black girls experiences this. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, just in the U.S. alone, you know, um, 500 women are raped and sexually assaulted each day in the U.S. alone. You know, <laughs> just imagine just the entire world, you know. 500 a day. Yes, at least 500 a day, the average. Yeah. That That's that's unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> that's insane yeah. to me. Um, and, and I know it's real. You know, it's not that it's insane or unbelievable that I don't believe it. I'm saying I know it's real. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, and it angers me. And when you, I asked the question earlier and I talked about the, the difference between what happens in the black community and what happens in the white community or communities of color and the white community. Cause this podcast is intersections 
race, culture, theology. So I'm always talking about race and and, and seeing how those structures um, have have, uh, produced conditions. Not that people aren't responsible within those those situations, don't get me wrong, Um, but there are structures that produce conditions that affect different groups of people um, differently. And so, for example, when you have... Um, say a white kid that's kidnapped or um, missing, mm-hmm. or you have something that happens, something horrific happening to that 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 child, it gets exposure. Yes, it's, it's on the news. It's talked about. I remember on the milk cartons back in the day, or in the post office, you, you'd have these uh, on the milk cartons at least. Yeah. You'd have the missing kids, and they typically would be white. Yeah. But the same things happen in communities of color, but not yeah. the same exposure. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it breaks my heart, one, to, to, to see it happening to anybody, any yeah. child. But to, un- to think that there are structures that have long been in place that have decimated mm-hmm. communities of color that actually impact the family unit. Yeah, that you will find you are more likely find these types of uh, experiences. Unfortunately, you yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. You wanted to respond. No, I mean I really love this topic because I think um, or, or what you just said because the word that comes to mind for me just you know when it come whether it comes to rape or it just comes to being a black woman when we try to compare is the word. Um, I think a lot of times we are dehumanized. And um, that's something that's seeped in our culture that we, as black women and black men just in general, that we're not always look as look at as human beings to some level. There's this idea that we are super saviors and that in order for us to have value, we have to be broken down and um, uh, tread upon, or we have to, um, you know, go through extreme suffering in order to feel accomplished. There's all these additional things that are added to that. And so it's it's just a really, you know, we don't have the resources a lot of time to take care of certain things that need to be taken care of, Absolutely. Um, among, you know, in our community. And so, you know, whether it's for jobs or whether it's, you know, coming to our healing, there's just this idea that as a and and we also believe that that's something that as a black woman even myself at this point in my life and even career i have to fight against um with the idea that in order for me to be validated and for me to be accepted that i have to show proof through my suffering and that can become very toxic and so you know when it comes to even you asked the question earlier about what you know how is it with me living in the u.s now and the difference you know the other day i was just like you know with this whole racism and and you know that we've been dealing with in our community and in our church i'm like i break up with my relationship with america and black how they view black culture what that really is you know um what they what we how we need to show up um, if, if the story is not overbearing, if we haven't been through nothing, anything, then it's not valid, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. 
it's like at what point will that change where you know um i think we all have to take responsibilities to some level in for our, ourselves how we show up ourselves um and even in the white community you know they have to take their own responsibilities as well yeah, you know yeah. um to for us to fix it all you know so i have so much to say about it but anyway no, it's, it's good go it's good you know when yeah. you talk about when you talk about um we have we uh, without the suffering um without yes um, it, it, having that part um us having to go through that mm-hmm. uh, we have to show up proving yeah. that we've suffered enough and one <laughs> right. thing in my film open wounds uh, my friend um dr kia screen she she she's a uh she teaches at ucla uh, in the nursing department and she says even today um, when, when students come in um, or nurses, when they're surveyed, yes, they literally believe that black people don't feel, feel pain the same way other people do. Totally, totally. And so, and then she, then she yeah. tied it to when we were, uh, our ancestors were enslaved yeah. and brought over, they were not, they were considered to be non-sentient. Mm. We didn't feel. Yeah, yeah. And so that you see that thread line, yeah. that, that through line all the way up to today, yeah. to your point about having to suffer, like we can suffer more and it should be okay. Yeah. And that's why our suffering oftentimes is dismissed. Of course. Because totally. implicitly, subconsciously, we don't feel. People yeah. think we don't feel yeah. the same way that say yeah. a white person does. And make no mistake about it, what we're talking about transcends race in terms of it, it touches every demographic but when you put a racialized when you look through that racial lens you will see that it affects communities of color more than white communities so for instance one statistic i found said that um the highest is is the native american community experiencing Mm -hmm. child abuse for every 1000 people 15.2 people experience child abuse Mm -hmm. in the black community for every 1000 is 14 people in the white community, for every one thousand is eight point two people. Mm-hmm. So you can see, and you can go down the list. I think the Latino Latinx community is somewhere between white and black. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think 11, 11 um, per one thousand. Okay. And so it affects everybody, for the most part. But you could see where these invisible structures, right? They're not invisible necessarily to our community. Yeah. But to a lot of people, they don't see this 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 the toxicity of racism in our country and how it's so insidious and it produces yeah. numbers like this. Of like course. you said, we don't have the resources to even respond yeah. to these things. Like say what, what happened in the, in the white community. Of course. And people need to understand that. Yeah. Um, so you, you don't open up so much for me <laughs> as well. Um, so, so you, you, you told your story through a play, which I think, Man, when you told me you were doing that, I, I got goosebumps now thinking about it because I'm like, she's going to tell, and I'm pretty transparent. Yeah. She's going to tell the story. Yeah. And I think, I, I can't say enough how moved I was during that whole play. I mean, it was just, I was just locked in. Yeah. Right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. What, what inspired you to want to tell the story in that context, in that way, in that medium? Through the play, I know you're you're an actor, you're a yeah. performer, you're a poet, because a lot of it is in is in poetry as well. Yeah. But, but 
Not everyone connects that dot. Not everyone will take. So sometimes the gift and the skill becomes an escape from. Yeah. So they don't want to bring the, 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 the hard stuff, the tragedies to that space. Yeah. You didn't separate. You actually brought it in there and, 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 and allowed yourself to tell that story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it beautiful was a journey for me. Um, because after going through that, you know, situation and, um, you know, what people have to understand, like when you, when a woman, you know, any child is abused, it's, it's like murdering the soul, you know, um, God's intention for us, the family, you know, I remember a conference that I was at that you would invite me to, um, I think her name is Debbie Titus that said, yeah, mom you know, the home is the basis of all um, of human society or something like that. Yeah. And I really believe that because I believe God created family in order to teach us how to trust, how to build identity. I mean, so shape, you know, who we are, or giftings and different things like, you know, like that. Um, and when that's broken, right, when you have a trust from a father um, that is broken and um, you lose a, a part of yourself. You lose the part, uh, uh, the essence of how God created you to show up in the world. And so, for me, I had to learn, relearn, the transform, and renewing of my mind um, as I got older. Because I, if if I had to put it in one sentence, I grew up based on the circumstances that was handed to me. I grew up in a, a world and a society and a, a home to some level where my body was objectified. I wasn't seen, heard, or loved the way God wanted me to be. And so I filtered everything that I wanted from the, everything was external. So I started to live the life where I wanted to find love. I wanted to find identity outside of me and outside of God. And that will take you on a whole journey. So, you know, here I am as an actress. Um, When I came to LA, you know, I, I moved from New York and, you know, I was here and I knew that this was where I was supposed to be. I was in purpose, but I still was broken. So that issue was not taken care of. And so I was performing and doing commercials and mostly a lot of commercials and making money. And, you know, here I am out in Hollywood and it's like, okay, you know, I found identity, right? Because you know, people are seeing you, you're on TV and you're driving a nice car and, you know, all these external things. But still there was a wounded child. Still there was a wounded woman that no one was really, um, wasn't, you know, obviously, cause it was, it, it, no one was privy to here cause I just moved here. And I think through prayer and just amazing people in my life, like God led me to a place where I needed to find my true identity, who I am, and that Hollywood was not going to define that for me. And that was the thing that, you know, because I, I, you know, I booked a feature film and I went away um, for three months to shoot it, and I came back and you know I had managers and agents, and they're just like, we want you to dress this way and we want you to look this way and be here and do this. And it wasn't me. I knew it wasn't me. Going back to that little girl in Jamaica, I knew I was 
my life had purpose and it was greater than money and car and being on TV just to be on TV. And so being the radical, cause I got that radical side of me, <laughs> being the radical side of me, I, I fired everybody. I was like, I'm done. Manager go, agent go, wow. I'll just cut, cut turkey, you know? And I was just like, I need to go and find Josanne. And, but when you start to find yourself and you, you start to let God work in that, it becomes really messy because it's not a play playing thing now. It's like real face to face with myself. And I realized that I was still broken and I was still angry and I was still resentful. And one of the worst things we can ever do is to filter our calling through anger mm. because we just never, you know, love should drive us. Hate should never drive us to do anything. Yes, and so yes. I remember talking to a, a well-known psychologist and she said, I, I was, I'm a psychologist and she said, hate um, drove me to be the best. I hated my mother so much, I decided to be the best. And even when I was the best, I was not satisfied with my life because I was still broken. This is a psychologist that yeah, I'm talking yeah. to. Wow. That's, and that's so cool. it was important to me to find healing. So beautiful, when beautiful came about, I had went on this almost eight year journey of really trying to discover who I was. I was not trying to be on the stage. I'd given up acting. I actually thought I was going to become a missionary. That was the goal because I wanted to help people. So I thought I was going to move to Haiti. I was going to be a missionary and um, I was done with Hollywood or anything acting. But, you know, God gives us gifts so that he can get glory from, from them. And um, he just wanted me to come to a place of understanding that my identity was never in what I do, but it's who I am in him. And that took me to the place where healing came through through prayer and through seeking and god's word and just everything where i was able to understand grace and the love of god and um you know so god allowed me to to extend that to my dad through forgiveness to forgive my dad it, it, it led me to that place where I had to forgive my dad and I'd come to a very monumental place in my life at the time I was getting married. And as I didn't know who was going to give me away um, at my wedding, I had great men, you know, brothers in Christ, people that I could have called. But just through prayer, I felt the Holy Spirit was like, call your dad. Wow. And you know, don't get me wrong now. At first I was like, you know, that would be talking too. Let me just make sure this is from Jesus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but I knew it was God. And I, I picked up the phone and I called my dad. It was very robotic, you know, because when you when you talk, when you share your testimony and things like that, people think it's like this ooh like moment, like it was just bliss. It's like, no, I just picked up the phone and was just like, hey, <laughs> look, I'm getting married. It's in 10 days. I, I want you to come and attend the wedding. It was very dry and very to the point. And one of the things that I'm learning is like, sometimes when you're called to do something, we always feel we need to feel good in order for yeah, yeah. it to be God. Yeah. And sometimes it's just obedience. Yeah. And at the end, the good, you feel the good after the obedience, if yes. I may say so, yes. you know? Yes. So I called and he came, um, which I, you know, I was grateful. And we had this conversation and as um, in Starbucks of all places and- The church of uh, Starbucks. 
Yeah, Starbucks. Yeah, Starbucks. Starbucks. Yeah, Starbucks be hooking people up and making you know things happen. Um, and so you know, it was the first time I was confronting him about the situation for over eight to ten years, and but I was a different person. I didn't know what that would feel like. And sitting in front of him, I realized in that moment, you know, that how much grace and mercy was in my own life. And I remember him touching my hand and apologizing and saying, I'm sorry. And through the whole, you know, situation, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm sorry, like three words, you just, three words, like, do you know all the things that I've been through to get to this point? And all I can hear is, I am sorry. And then I heard three words to me, and it was like, it is finished. You see, everything, it is finished. God did it in my life. And there was nothing more to do more than to extend grace. And so I was able to look at my dad, not as just the man who abused me, but as a human being and um, that we were born in sin and shape and iniquity. And it was this moment, a revelation and an understanding that I'd come to know for my own self, you know, to see my own depravity even outside of what my father did. Um, and that was my experience, you know? And God was just so gentle with, you know, and I wanna just say, even for anyone that's listening, it might seem because in such a short period of time explaining something that is so heavy and weighty, it might seem so, wow, you know? But the, the, the beauty of it was the long, how much time I was given over eight years. It took me eight years to get to this place. It wasn't overnight, yeah. you know, and it just shows the, the gentleness and the, the great timing of who um, a loving God is, you know, for myself and also for my dad. And I was able to extend that forgiveness. And I think the last thing that stood out to me was, can you honor someone who's dishonorable? because it goes back to identity, you know? It's like identity does not shift based on how people treat us. You are who you are and um, it's hard to do at times, you know? And, um, you know, it was a perfect example of my dad giving me away at my wedding in the sense of how God take the things that seems no one wants and might look unholy and 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 let that person or that situation partake of him you know it's like why would he why should he be at the most you know supposedly the most um amazing time of my life like he shouldn't be there but that's not how god see, saw it you know and i was able just to see the love um for even for my own self you know um, and so that happened and, you know, uh, I end up writing the, the, after my healing, I ended up writing beautiful, the play I wrote it because I wanted to encourage people that a tragic event really, you know, don't need to be the, the story of your life that there wasn't, you know, a period after abuse. There is always a comma if you're breathing and you have life. And so I took a step of faith and shared the story. I didn't want to go on stage as a woman, 
broken, you know, because when you're sharing a story like this, you you open up a lot of things in yourself and you have to be ready for the commentaries <laughs> and just anything else, you know? Um, and so I did beautiful, I wrote it and I took a step of faith and I was only gonna do it for um, a stage reading. The goal was do it as a stage reading. And I did it and the me who loved doing things in a big way, I was like, I'm gonna just rent out a 300 seat theater and we gonna do it, let's go, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> got there with like 15 people showed up. <laughs> Like, okay, we, the show must go on. And, humble, humble beginnings. Humble right, beginnings. exactly. 15 people showed up, and but it's not about the people, right? It's about the obedience. And within that 15 people, I had my director in that audience um, who later took it to the Latina Theater Company who ended up producing it. And we did a three-week run, and we thought of just the workshop production of it. And then it was like, we're gonna do the premiere production. It just went from one stage to the next. And before you know it, we had like a five week run of the show and people were just giving their testimonies, you know? But I'm gonna say this last, and I always have to tell the story because I want people to understand the weight of abuse and how it affects lives and destinies. Um, you know, the last night of my show, I met a 74-year-old Jewish woman. And I always tell the story because she, I felt like God gave her to me as an imprint in my mind and my heart why I, I, I need to continue telling the story. And, um, you know, I say all of that to say that she came up to me at the end of the show and I thought, you know, she was crying and I, at first I thought she couldn't even speak because it took her such a long time. And she grabbed onto my hands and she said, young lady, um, when I was eight years old, I was raped. And tonight is the first time I'm telling anyone and I feel beautiful. And I remember I just wept, like I just wept. And I hugged her, you know, we were like two lost sisters. Like I just hugged her. There was no separation. There was no, she's Jewish, she's 74, I am black. It was just like, I understood that. But I walked away from that experience saying, oh my gosh, 64 years? 64 years of not telling anyone about this? and the shame and the fear. And so I saw it was no longer a show for me. It was necessary, it was needed. It was something that I felt like this conversation need to continue. So hence the book and you know other things, you know? Um, so that's why I do the play and I've just seen how it has give other people permission to speak out themselves and bring healing. I mean, I still get DMs and Facebook messages of a person who saw, who saw my show last year, who forgave her dad this year of what he did to her, um, you know? And those things are very encouraging and humbling at the same time. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> 
how do I respond to that? <laughs> how do I respond to that? You you said I want to I want to I want to just kind of recap. Yes, sir. You you mentioned forgiveness, and you said when he when your father said, "I am sorry." Yes. You you were like, "That's it." Yeah. Three words. Yeah. And the Lord put on your heart, spoke to your heart and said, it is finished. Yes. I want you to understand something because people don't understand forgiveness. Mm. Yeah. What you did with forgiveness is removing the debt. Mm. And literally, when you forgive someone, you're saying you don't owe me anything else. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's important because people think that forgiveness means I'm letting them off the hook. Mm. And really, you're letting yourself off their hook. Yeah. You, you better say a word today. Okay. You, you see what I'm saying? Yes. yes. Because I've gone through the same thing. I went through the same thing with my dad, forgiving yeah. my father. Yeah. Even to the point where you say, can you, can you honor the dishonorable? Yeah. I literally was broken one day when the mm. Lord placed it on my heart. To honor my father. Yeah. He yeah. said, God said, you forgave and you love, but you don't honor your father. Mm. Wow. And I was I was getting ready to preach the next day on the Ten Commandments. Wow. And, 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 and the Lord placed it on my heart. You can't preach that because you'll be a hypocrite because you don't honor your father. Wow. Wow. And so I had a 24-hour period where I had to decide from that point on, starting with that message the next day, I was going to honor my father with mm. my words. Yes. And because forgiveness, it is just that. It is finished. It is finished. You're removing <laughs> yeah. the debt. It does not mean you have to put yourself back in a toxic relationship. It does not mean you have to be back in that relationship. It means I'm no longer hostage to the debt that you owe me. Right. So yeah. people think they're releasing the other person, but you're actually releasing yourself as well. Right. That's yeah. why what you just shared was so important. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. You talk about the weight of abuse. I had a similar story. As a personal trainer, I had a, a man, he was 63 years old. Now, this mm. wasn't sexual abuse. This was verbal. Yeah. He said when he was nine years old, his father said to him, was very abusive, very mean man. And he said, you ain't nothing and you ain't never going to be nothing. He told a nine-year-old that. Mm. And I was trying to train this man to help him get healthy. I was get, getting ready to train him. And he said, you know, every time I get halfway to my goals, I sabotage them. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yes, yes, yes. That's a real thing. <laughs> my initial consultation with him apparently was so deep. That it took him back 54 years and he connected the dots to, as, as to why he sabotaged when he would be on his way to his goals. Because he kept remembering what his father said when he was nine. And he didn't think that he was deserving to be healthy. Wow. Wow. 63. Wow. He held on to that for 54 years. Now, needless to say, he said, I don't think I need personal training right now. I think I need therapy. So I never got to train him. <laughs> so I lost right. the client. <laughs> but but for him it was yeah. it was freeing because he the next time I talked with him he actually told his father 
He, he reached mm. out to me. He said, I told my father for the first time I stood up to my father at 63. Mm. His father was still abusive. And so the, peop the weight of abuse, imagine how many people are walking around with that weight. How yeah. many people, as you say, you, don't, you didn't want to go on the stage broken, wounded. Imagine how many people are showing up wounded, yeah. broken, yeah. Yeah. deeply, deeply, walking yep. in their calling, yeah. come, going to their jobs, showing up to their kids, showing up to their marriage, showing yes. up deeply wounded. Yes. So thank you, first of all, for just your openness and, 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 and sharing. I just wanted to, to share the thoughts that I had from from you um from what you shared and, and you you got into your book i want to i want we, we got we got a minute to go we, we ain't no let's, let's we ain't go I'm, I'm, I'm riding with you today <laughs> <laughs> so you you said you said you have a book so what's the difference between the book beautiful unashamed and unafraid which by the way everyone you can order beautiful unashamed and unafraid by Josanne marie on amazon right now yes kindle or hard yes. copy and I got go, a copy here so y'all can see. <laughs> go yeah. get the book. Yeah. Go get the book. All right? Yes. So what's the difference between the book and the play? Is there a distinction? What's the difference there? Well, the play, you know, it's, an, it's 90, 90 minutes, hour and a half, and it takes you on the journey, obviously, of my story, like the, the, the heart of it and where I was raised in Jamaica and, you know, all of that good stuff. The book is called Beautiful, Unashamed, and Unafraid. And so, like I shared with the Jewish woman, I was asking myself the question, why are women and men waiting so long to talk about these issues, you know? Like, I, I mean, I didn't, not everyone knew about it, but I did, in a way, talk about it with friends here and there so me hearing this woman waiting you know 62 years was just like what you know it was unbelievable and then more in my show i would hear people stand up and saying oh i never told my mom till i was 50 or you know just all these different things and how it affected their lives and so that's what inspired the book because I realized that people weren't afraid of telling their story. People were afraid of feeling shame. Shame is a very powerful thing. Shame can keep you hidden. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not just hidden physically, but hidden from yourself. Like, you're, 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 you're stagnant, you're immobile from really moving and operating in the freedom of who you are because you have this thing over here it's like this big spot right it's like i have on this white shirt and if i have like you know something messy here i'm gonna want to cover it right yeah. and that's how shame make us feel we, we cover up and we start hiding who we you know who god created us to be and the enemy uses it and i was just like people are not afraid of telling their story they're afraid of shame and that's why it's called Beautiful, Unashamed, and Unafraid with the book. And so I wanted to talk about issues because I felt like I would have a talk back and the talk back is supposed to be 20 minutes and it would go an hour. And it's like, we got to get out of the theater. And people wanted to talk more. And I wanted to just give people who probably never see the play, you know, something um, that they could read and they could sit at their own house and digest personally in their own space. 
um, that dealt with shame and fear because I grew up a lot with shame and fear. And it wasn't just about abuse. I realized that abuse was like the nucleus of everything in my life, but there were all these tentacles. Like I was ashamed of um, that I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I started to become, as I got older, I start and coming to America, I started to be ashamed of my skin or the features of my face, or I started to be ashamed, you know, what did I gain weight? Did I lose weight? Like all these things started to come up. And I was ashamed that my mom had mental illness. Like my whole entire life up until high school, everyone thought my mom was a flight attendant in Florida. It was just the most ridiculous lie, first of all. Uh, <laughs> I was like, why is she a flight attendant and just in Florida? It didn't make sense. But anyway, um, you know, but I was ashamed of that. And I couldn't talk to people about that. Mental illness is not something people want to talk about in Black culture. It's ostracized. It's, you don't want to talk about that parent or that loved one, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so I spent a lot of time being ashamed of those things. And so I wanted to write you know, the book is not just about sexual abuse. Yes, it's my journey in there, but there are chapters. The chapter is about home. There's chapters. What does that really mean? You know, because my whole life, I wanted a big family. I Family was very important to me as a child. And that came from TV, right? Like I wanted, I wanted my family, like the Huxtables. I wanted the little prairie on the house. Like I wanted a family. And my family was very dysfunctional from I came into the world. And I was ashamed of that, um, not knowing my dad, you know, just all these things. And I realized, so I wrote the, the chapter home to say family don't all, we confuse family with relative. A relative mm. is someone that you are biologically born into the family by a bloodline, but family is anyone that nurture you and invest in your life. That Absolutely. That makes the person that you are. Preach, so, preach. You know what I'm saying? So I had to I had to cut ties with what that meant for me in order for me to actually live a fruitful life and start to accept the people that God did send to me that was family, that felt like family, that nurtured my gifts, that spoke truth to me, that brought healing to me, um, rather than trying to hold on to this idea because of bloodline. So that was one chapter. I talk about mental illness. I talk about not settling. You know, I saw a lot of women, especially in Jamaican culture that I grew up, who settled for a lot of pain and a lot of shame when it came to relationships that they didn't want to be in. And I, I wanted to talk about those things. So the book is so much different than Beautiful, because Beautiful, Beautiful, the play, focused mostly on abuse and overcoming that and a sense of forgiveness. The book Beautiful on a shame talks about life in general through that whole situation that I encountered and the lessons that I learned that I wanted to just share with other people as well. It's great, great, great. You know, when I when I look at the title, Beautiful, Unashamed and Unafraid, I think of the word redemptive or redemption, that you are telling your yes. story, your narrative. You're not allowing um, the shame or the fear to dictate your story. You're not letting anyone else tell your story. You're not letting your past tell your story. Yes. You don't have a period after abuse. Yes. You have a, a ellipses yes. or a <laughs> comma, and there's more. Yeah. <laughs> and so now you're you, you're redeeming that, and in the process, yes. you're bringing healing. You're being life giving to others. 
That's that's what comes to yeah. mind when I think about the play and the book. Um, transition, because I want to make sure we touch on this before we end. Um, you 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 said going back to there's not a period after abuse, and you're telling your story, your narrative, but your story continues. Your, your narrative is still yeah. being written, um, and you're yes. you're in the industry, you're in Hollywood, um, you're out here doing it. And um, but yeah. you said acting introduced you to racism. Explain what that what you mean by that being a a, a black woman of faith in Hollywood. Talk a little bit about that experience, but but especially how did acting and how did um, being in this industry introduce you to racism? Well, you know, as you guys know, you go out as an actor, you go out on auditions. Um, you know, you have an agent or manager, whatever it is, and you get these sides. You get, you know, okay, you're going on an audition tomorrow. Okay, what's the role? What's the character? Oh, black girl, um, you know, you know, she's she's black, she works, you know, she's she works in a convenience store, um, you know, she's on crack, she's, you know, she sells drugs, um, you know, she talks like, yo, you know, mother effort, da 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 da, you know, she has, you know, prof profane tongue, um, she's very hood. Um, or she's really funny, um, make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Um, <laughs> and I would <was laughs> see that all the time coming in for me. And I'm like, what? I'm like, number one, or I would see the N word if I'm, you know, in a dialogue like, yo, nigga, you know, and it's like, I don't even talk that way. So I was really confused. You know, it's like, I've never, I've never called a man that word ever in my vocabulary as a child and even an adult. So I was really confused why I was getting called in for roles that say these words. And not that they, not that people don't actually talk like that or live like that, but I'm like, why am I not the doctor? Why am I not in a leadership position? Why am I always need to be funny? Why is my why am I not getting roles for things that I see my white counterparts get all the time? Things with substance, things that making change, things that, you know, why why is the black woman always broke in the film? Why is why is she not the love interest? That's another thing, you know? Why is she the friend of the love interest? And if the love interest is black, she's very light-skinned black with long curly hair. Um, she is mixed, you know? So all these things made me realize that, one, yeah, it was a fact that I was discriminated against as an actor and that they were just seeing me through one lens. And you know, I'm just like, well, that's not the story I want to tell. I, I don't want to tell. I mean, yeah, I could play those roles, but am I going to always go in for that girl? You know, is every black woman um, in abusive relationships? Is every black woman, uh, you know, talk with a slang and um, ghetto, if you want to say like they, they're not. So, you know, and and so I just uh, dealing with that over and over for me was very 
irritating and it, it made me angry. It made me upset. And it came to a point where I remember um, I got called in for this role. Two, two, well, two times I was let go from, <laughs> from uh, uh, an agent. One was I got called in for a, a commercial that they wanted me to play. And, you know, she's, she's like, you know, singing the song and she's, it was, I mean, it had to promote alcohol in a very kind of lewd way. It was just really weird. And I, I turned it down and my agent let me go that same night. And the other role that I got called in for was with two May, I'm not gonna call their names, but two major actors in the industry. And I knew if I went in for that role, I would have booked it because I knew how to play it, but I didn't want to play it. And I said, this is my part, you know? This is my part in um, that I get to play. And maybe I'm not, you, 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 I might not be at the Oscars, but I'm not gonna contribute anymore to this nonsense. So for me, the role was, she's a woman, she's in the foster, she's taking care of foster kids, she's abusing these kids, she's half naked, she's smoking weed. And I mean, it just goes on and on. And then I read the dialogue and the dialogue has every explicit in the world. And these two white men came in and break the door down and bust this black woman. And she starts fighting them and her clothes is ripping off and she's half naked and they punch her in the face. And she tried to run down the street half naked. So I said to my, my agent, I was like, I'm not going in for that. And he's like, Josette, these casting directors really want me to come in. I was like, I am not participating in that foolishness anymore. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I knew if I, you know, cause as actors, you want to make money, right? That's a part of your job is that you could make a living in order to provide for yourself, you know? And but outside of that, most people who become actors are in entertainment. Even if they didn't, even if they didn't end up that way, they started off. Majority of people start off because they wanted to make change. They wanted to share their voice. They wanted to tell stories. And so, you know, for me, I started seeing that, and not just myself, but I see all my other black sisters were were tired of the same thing. And that's where I encountered the most, I would say, racism um, in my life, to be honest, is an entertainment industry. Wow. And, you know, sadly, that doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah. I, I have many friends out here that's in the industry. You know, we have some of the same friends. Yeah. And, and I hear the stories over and over again, uh, the, the typecasting, the, um, the stereotypes. And um, what that what happens is that cultural messaging of those roles in those films and TV shows, um, the disparity in the opportunities for black women and men yes, and, and, and other groups of color as well to get the, the same roles that their white counterparts get, it right. continue, it reinforces the stereotypes through the cultural messaging. Totally. Um, it reinforces and perpetuates um, what people already think about us. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. when we don't, when we, we, we some people are kind of in a, in a corner, they want to yeah. make money. They yeah. want to, they want to be an actor. Yeah. Um, so they take those roles and yeah. there are always going to be people that take those roles. Yes. And so it becomes difficult to, 
change the system yeah. in this way um, because it comes at a cost. It does. It right? does. And I think, you know, the good thing is I do think that, you know, based on just the movements and the discussion that we're having right now, um, just worldwide when it comes to um, racism, I think it's there is movement in, you know, Hollywood of that changing. We can see it more where it's more diverse, right? Um, and I see it in the breakdowns now, you know, obviously when my um, manager sends me sides, I, I'm seeing more of what I wanted, you know, but look how long it has taken. I mean, almost like a decade of go, you know, being called in for these type of roles, you know? So, yeah. you know, I'm glad that we're still making, um, pro we're beginning to make progress, let me say that. And it's up to every artist, you know, to, if you want the change, then you have to say no. That's how I look at it. If you continue to say yes to it, they're going to keep writing that. And um, even as a writer, you know, a screenwriter, when you write a, 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 a feature film or whatever it is writing, a lot of times we need to ask, I think it, it comes down to laziness and not laziness and, and ignorance um, because we're not taking the time to see people going back to that humanity, seeing them in a humane way. Like if your daughter if you're a white writer and you're writing a script, would you tell the story this way? Would this be their experience? Um, you know, and I know sometimes as artists, we write from our own experience, right? So if you raise in a rich white house, you probably will tell that story, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're an artist and you want to, um, you know, broaden your landscape, then we have to be you know, students, you know, um, of a, have a museum of culture in our back pockets that we can pull from because the more we tell broader stories is the better that little girl, black girl, white, Indian girl, Chinese girl, because Asian people are also discriminated against, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, um, that they can be more than the stereotype <laughs> that you are showing them through your, your work. We have a responsibility. Um, and I'll end with this. Nina Simone said this, and I love this quote, and I always quote it, is that an artist, you know, is responsible is responsible for the time, to reflect the time that they're in. And I think we're in this time right now where it's so important that as artists, actors, writers, singers, whatever we are, that if we want to see a different world when it comes to race, then we have to participate in what we do, um, we have to make decisions as well that's gonna be conducive to the progress of that. So that's very important. Amen, amen, amen. Yeah. You, 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 I'm gonna close with, the, with this thought just from listening to you. Faith is important to you. And you talk a lot about calling. You talk a lot about um, being made in the image of God. Um, and I think that, and I, I know that part of reflecting the image of God is when we're actually walking fully in who we are. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a cerebral understanding. We're rational beings. Um, we have emotion. 
we can love, we have agency. Those are things that people tend to attach to, and there's so much, there's more attached to what it means to image God, to be an image bearer. But what people don't also, they, they don't realize also is when you walk fully in who God made you to be, which requires that you begin to tell your narrative. Yeah. <laughs> you begin yeah. to embody your narrative. Yes. When you don't allow the trauma from the past, the 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 horror of the past, the stain of the yes. past to keep you from walking in who God's called you to be. Right. I don't care if God's called you to be a preacher, a doctor, a lawyer, or an actor, an author, a poet. When you walk in who God has called you to be in spite of. Yeah. That's part of what it means to image God. Yeah. To be an image bearer. Because yeah. God wired you and made you in yeah. that way. Yeah. No, that's yeah. Now we can get into a whole nother conversation <laughs> when it comes to artists. Because there's God God is the 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 ultimate artist. Artisan. No, totally. Right? Yeah. And so when we create or recreate, we're image bearing. We're, we're we're reflecting the image of God. And so your life, your journey, your story and my hopes is that it inspires more people, whether they know Jesus or not, know God or not, um, that they would would see themselves the way God sees them. Yeah. That they would start to walk in how God has wired them, uh, made them to be, and reflect God's image on yeah. this earth and impact yeah. from that place, from that space. Yeah. Thank you, Josanne. No. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this has been rich. This has been rich. I love it. Um, and I'm sure I'll have you back again. There's just so much. I mean, your show is amazing. Um, you know, I've been listening to um, some of your podcasts and just the word intersections and how timely it is um, to have it right now, you know, talking about faith and also talking about worldviews with faith. Cause I think so many times we separate those, right. Yeah, yeah. Where we have the church, but we don't want to talk about the things that are happening in the world that really affects us and really affects us in the church as well. Um, uh, so sometimes to even more than in, in the world, quote unquote, you know, and I think it's just so important. So it's an honor um, definitely to be on here and to talk about these, um, these you know, points. Um, it's so necessary um, as far as, especially when it comes to um, race, for sure, and how it affects our journey and um, who we are and who we'll, we will become, uh, or we are becoming, I should say, you know. Yeah. Um, so thank you for having me in this intersection. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. You can learn more about Josanne by visiting her website, josannemarie.com. Or you can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at the handle Josanne Marie. And don't forget to purchase her book, Beautiful, Unashamed and Unafraid. You can find it on Amazon right now. Be sure to get your pre-order of my book, Open Wounds, right now on Amazon. The book will be set for release on February 9th, and I'm excited for you all to get it and read it and soak it up and devour it and pass it on, 
even buy it as a gift for someone else. As always, I appreciate you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show as well as having been challenged. Thank you for parking and hanging out with me at the intersections.